Welcome to a Black Movie Podcast, where we celebrate Black culture through its cinema by reviewing and discussing Black-led films from a range of different genres and time periods. My name is James, and I'm joined by... Ryan. Andre. And Lauren. Tonight, we are going to be talking about One Night in Miami, the dramatization of a real-life conversation, meeting, event of the century, one could say, between Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke. This was the directorial debut uh, by Regina King, the queen of us all, starring... Kingsley Ben Adir, Eli Goray, Aldous Hodge, and Leslie Odom Jr., with some pretty decent supporting roles, which I won't name out. But first, I want to hear just top level what did you all think about the movie, starting with you, Andre. Oh, I don't know if you want to do that. <laughs> uh, no, I like I I really didn't like this movie. Just just straight up, I didn't like this movie. We can get into it more, but yeah, for me, it just felt like one two-hour-long uh, debate as opposed to an actual movie. And so, you know, I'll pass that one on to Lauren. I watched this movie twice. I watched it back in the winter and then again this week for the podcast. And the first time I watched it, I was like, I think that was good, but I didn't really know how I felt about it. So I was actually dying to talk about it in this podcast because I was like, I feel like I need to talk about it with people. And then the second time I just watched it, I felt better about it. Like, I liked it more. I do think, though, it's a it's a, a very much a character piece. So you have to really pay attention to it. And you have to be really invested in the conversation, basically, that these guys are having. And I don't think it's for everyone. But I do think it's, I do think it's good. I've settled on the I think it's a good movie side. For my part, I definitely had some feelings about this being Oscar bait in a number of ways. This movie, like a number of the other movies that we've seen, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom uh, being one of them, is a stage adaptation. And that really shows in how bottle episode the majority of the plot is set up around. And I think that we get some really great performances out of this, and that really made the movie for me. I liked it. There was also a number of things where it felt like they were showing off like deep black history jeopardy category knowledge. And there were just a lot of really, really, really heavy handed references and things put in just, just so they can say like, Oh yeah, well, you know, we researched this because we have the exact number of yards Jim Brown ran this year. And, and here's Malcolm X, like, you know, holding a somehow printed copy of his autobiography as told by Alex Haley. Like there's a bunch of those kinds of moments that just like were groaners for me. But like when, when the movie settled into the meat of those debates and dialogues, like I was with it, like they were, they were affecting. Some of them were very timeless. James, what'd you think? So I like this movie. However, it is a weird movie. And I think I probably would like the stage play maybe a little bit more because as you mentioned, Ryan, it, it does feel it feels more like a play, I think, than Ma Rainey did. Ma Rainey, like to me, still felt like a movie. This movie didn't quite feel that way. And I kind of see why Andre thought it was more just like a, conver a conversation between people and not like a film, because that kind of is not only what it is purporting to be, but it's kind of also what it's based on. So I can absolutely see how it feels that way. But I think the thing about it that I really liked was the performances. Like, I think the performances of the four main cast is so good that, like, I'm overlooking the fact that, like, it kind of doesn't have, like, a progression like a movie seems like it should have. And you kind of don't end in a different place than where you start. And honestly, the thing that was most intriguing to me is I wanted to know what actually happened. Like to, to step back, this is a dr dramatization of the meeting that supposedly happened. We have no idea what they talked about. And as far as I know, no one has mentioned anything. And out of the four main members of this conversation, only Jim Brown is still alive. So, we have no real shame that. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Actually, no, not sorry. Um, all shades of Jim Brown. Um, 
<laughs> we'll get there. Um, go ahead. <laughs> um, but I just, I'm really curious what actually happened. I suspect it wasn't anything like what happened in this movie because there's a lot of people talking like people don't talk in this movie. This was very clearly written dialogue, not something that someone said. But even with all that said, I walked out of the movie, walked. I got up off my couch after watching the movie and uh, felt really good. And like my immediate response was, okay, I need to know more about who these people really were because coming into this movie, just learned a little bit about myself. I only really knew about Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. And I only really knew about them because I grew up in Tennessee where maybe black history is not taught particularly well about them from media that has existed about them. And I knew absolutely nothing about Jim Brown and absolutely nothing about Sam Cooke. So after this movie, I was like, got it. Now I am absorbing myself into who these people really were so I can understand more about like what could have actually happened. I do want to talk a little bit about sort of the framing of the movie. The movie starts out with an introduction of all four of these men not necessarily like at the height of their, well, let me rephrase that. So it's at potentially like a challenging point in their life. Starts out with Cassius Clay before he's known as Muhammad Ali, kind of taunting a guy in a boxing match and uh, ultimately getting hit probably way harder than he expected and ultimately winning the fight. But I like that it sort of gives us that sense of his personality. We see... Sam Cooke, who, like I mentioned, I didn't know, but completely flame out um, at the Copacabana. I'm curious if that really happened. That did really happen, although I don't think it happened. It did. It like the 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 timing of all the all, all the prelude stuff is really uh, compressed and fictionalized to make it seem like it's all happening close together. Those happen like mm. years and years apart, uh, but all of those things I do believe happened. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's nuts. We saw uh, Malcolm X speaking with his wife about the turmoil between him and the Nation of Islam. And then we saw Jim Brown. I, I wasn't didn't super know the guy he went to talk to, but he went to talk to a former coach of his who seemed like he respected his physical ability and then had some choice words for him when he tried to enter his home. So I I thought that was an interesting way to sort of frame who these people were before we got them all together. It was, it was a nice window into look at all the racism that these people deal with in a way that's personalized to each of them. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like that was more of like framing the world at the time, as opposed to saying much about these uh, different people. Like, uh, when I read that early on um, in those scenes, it was just kind of like that you could see what was coming. And it is like as they're the different scenes are being presented, it's like, oh, yeah, Muhammad Ali there and show him jumping around the ring, taunting Jim Brown. He's having this conversation with this guy. This is going to go towards a play, dark place that no one wanted to go to. And like just on and on and on. It's just like, OK, like we get it. <laughs> It was, I do think, pretty heavy-handed in the beginning, but I also think that's because the movie was trying in a very short amount of time and with very little information about what that one night in Miami actually was like. Like, we know that the four of them actually did hang out. They were friends, and they had this night together after the fight in which Ali becomes, or Cassius Clay at that time becomes, the heavyweight champion of the world. But we don't really know what they said, we do know that they have a lot of things in common and including the fact that they're all black men and black men at this point in history and that they were all essentially somewhere on this sort of like spectrum of civil rights activism, but doing it from their own different perspectives, right? So you have like the hardliner in Malcolm X, who's really focused on just here on pro-blackness and to some extent anti-segregationists with or anti-integrationists with the nation of islam you've got muhammad ali who's about to take steps into that world you've got jim brown who i actually didn't know a ton about but he's i mean the things that he's known for after football basically are his fledgling movie career and still doing activism and supporting black businesses 
And then you've got Sam Cooke, who honestly, James, it pains me to hear you say that you had no idea who Sam Cooke was growing up. Like, I died a little on the inside. I'm not going to lie. Just a tiny bit of me died. Think of it this way. Like, he's, he's got some amazing stuff to really discover. Yeah. <sighs> That's true. That's good. Good framing. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, but you've got Sam Cooke, who, while on one hand, uh, was definitely an activist and actually pens basically one of the greatest civil rights songs of our time, basically, also had a lot of issues because of the fact that he was trying to play in clubs like the Copacabana, where his kind weren't uh, really wanted or desired. And a lot of people felt like he was you know, playing pandering music for white folks, etc. Right. So there are all these different stages in their activism. They're all experiencing the same sort of racism across the board. They're all approaching that differently. And this movie uses actually their night together to explore that being essentially the nexus of their conversation somehow. And like examining how each of them might have actually handled that differently, which is kind of interesting, but it also feels really ham-fisted and kind of forced because they might not have been talking about any of that stuff. We assume that maybe they were because immediately afterwards... Cassius Clay goes out and announces himself as a member of the Nation of Islam. But it's kind of hard to say, like, what exactly happened. Yeah, like, I, I think that what really works well in this movie, we talked about the performances. Eli Gorey stole the show for me. Muhammad Ali is an incredibly difficult person to try to portray. Lots of people have tried to do it to varying degrees of success. But I don't think any of them had the physical dynamism on on camera that Guri has in this movie it is really infectious and like just all, i don't know like it, it was it was really the mood lightener and you could see how people you know would operate with someone like that in it and it was actually nice to see the dialogue written around those things there and the dialogue felt so true to Cassius Clay Muhammad Ali that there were a, a, at least three different parts of the movie where I predicted the lines that were going to come next, because after, you know, looking at and reading so much stuff about him, you know, in my youth, it was like, right, if he's looking at this mirror, he's definitely going to say, like, how am I so pretty? And then it happens, and it felt really good to <laughs> feel like, okay, well, the screenwriter at least is paying attention to. But yeah, um, what other performances really stood out for you all? I really love... Sam Cooke's portrait, like the portrayal that Leslie Odom Jr. did of Sam Cooke. And the first time he opened his mouth to sing, I basically just like hit the floor. It's so like, good. Oh, it's so spot on. Um, it's so good. And I, I mean, love Sam Cooke's music, obviously. And so just being able to hear it basically come alive again, in a way, uh, through Leslie's portrayal, I think was amazing. I also think he just did a really great job of bringing him to life a little bit and having lots of little mannerisms that you would see in his performances and things like that. Yeah, I would also second that. Stepping back, I didn't, like I said, I didn't know Sam Cooke's music, so the, the musical aspect didn't really hit me. But, like, he felt like a real person, which is, like, sometimes I don't see that a lot in movies. Like, obviously I can tell that, like, you're an actor portraying a role, but, like, Leslie Odom Jr., like, felt like the Sam Cooke he was portraying on that screen could have been the Sam Cooke in real life. Like, everything about the, the performance, everything about sort of the things that he was saying all seemed very, like, believable to me. Yeah, um, I also think, personally, I did really like uh, uh, Kingsley Benadir uh, as Malcolm. I actually thought he did a really nice job of... I don't want to... I don't really want to put it this way, but of controlling the sort of conversation... And being some of the sort of the dominant per, uh, personality in the room and kind of uh, uh, capturing that uh, sort of more militant stance, as well as also portray at the same time portraying uh, just an actual person in terms of, uh, you know, he had this hardline stance, but we also got to see the concern and a bit of depth to it where there was this complete and total like gentler side that we don't always think about when it comes to Malcolm X that I think was a really, really refreshing thing to see. And then I gotta, I gotta agree with Ryan on, uh, Eli Gore. What was his name? Is it Gore or Gore? Uh, probably Gore. He's Canadian. We'll encourage him to listen to this episode and then tweet us and tell us for yeah. sure. So Please, Eli, if you're out job. there, please correct hit us. us up. Yeah, it's funny because the last time I saw him was watching the 100, which that's 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, no, he was he was awesome too. Like uh, when when it was his moment to sort of shine and own the scene, like he owned it. Like he was amazing. None of my criticisms of this movie have to do with the acting. Like the acting was phenomenal. Everything that I have like issues with is just the way that the movie played out, which uh, getting back to some of the earlier discussions, it made sense. Like, cause that was one of the things I uh, put down in my notes. So was just like, Oh yeah, this seems more like a play than an actual film. But yeah, I just, it rubbed me the wrong way. Cause it just felt like people just arguing their stance and trying to convince the other that they were right. As opposed to like an actual movie where things were happening and we got to see these different stances actually take place and kind of understand the different merits of each person's uh, point of view. Uh, yeah, I want to step back to also mention Kingsley Benadir's job as Malcolm X. Um, I think that was very a very interesting portrayal of Malcolm X, not one that I see very common. I think the things that he did super well, and I don't know if this is true to life for how Malcolm X really was, but I was convinced was like the fear and paranoia and some of the vulnerability that you don't always see in portrayals of Malcolm X. Like I thought he did an excellent job for that. But Andre, I also wanted to talk about your point about people just sort of debating their stance. The thing that I kind of left this movie with that made me feel a little bit weird is that I didn't really feel like anyone's opinions really changed. And and maybe that's not completely true. We see sort of also, there's just going to be spoilers in this episode. This movie is based on a fake event from the 60s. So that's just like the nature of it. Spo spoilers for American history. <laughs> it's a real movie about a fake version of a real event. Yes, exactly. I'm the dude playing the dude disguised as the other dude. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, But it, it sort of ends with you seeing not really what happens to people, but sort of the aftermath things that happen in, in each one of our characters' lives after this meeting. And you could make a case that may, maybe if this happened, really happened, it did change some people's perspectives. But because they didn't know that, and because the conversation was fictionalized, it felt like a I entered in with my thoughts and opinions, we sort of hashed it out, and then I left with basically those same thoughts and opinions. Um, so I'm kind of curious what you all kind of thought about that aspect. So for me, like I, so this is very much a bottle episode. It's it's similar to like the Sunset Limited, where the whole point is to have two people hashing out their opinions in a debate kind of style, and the goal is actually not for them to change each other's opinions. In this case, the debate is for the audience. It's not for the characters, right? The characters are there to show you different perspectives and talk through why they have those perspectives and try to convince each other's side. So I think the Larger question for me is, was the movie good at convincing you that any of them were particularly more right than the other? And what I came away with the fact is that none of them were actually more right. None of them were going to change their minds. We basically are who we are, and they were who they were, and were coming at us in different ways. And it was more of a showcase of those different experiences than it was an actual attempt to change minds. But even if it was an attempt to change minds, I think it really just showed me that none of them were totally right or wrong. Right. They all had extremely valid points. They were all right and they were all wrong at times in the way that they were handling things. I think that was more of the goal rather than it trying to convince you, you know, that you should follow Malcolm X's line of thinking or you should follow Sam Cooke's line of thinking. I don't really think that was the goal. That said, like, you have to be interested in enjoying a movie of that sort, right? Where it really is just a character study of these folks and their interdynamics. And I think that that's hard to do in some cases. If you're not already kind of familiar with them and invested more in their backstories, too, because you got such a little bit of that, that it was actually hard to separate out. Well, it was hard, I think, to get the full picture of what they're talking about within just like the you know two hours that you have in the film. If that makes sense. Like there's too little time to really do that justice. Right. This might have made more sense to me if it was like a limited miniseries in a way. I definitely agree. And I think that like in particular, there's a whole lot of things that aren't as powerful if you don't have context that didn't really get highlighted in the film. For example, we talked about Malcolm's paranoia and, you know, one of the 
big drivers of his behavior in this movie is his his coming split with the Nation of Islam, him taking the Hajj, um, Hajj to Mecca, and embracing a more traditional traditional common international form of Islam, which also then changes his some of his views and his his both like publicly and privately in a lot of ways that were threatening to a number of people. The paranoia about like, hey, you know, these these people were following me around and in seeing um the the brother from the Nation of Islam with the bow tie, <laughs> but Brother Kareem. Yeah, Lance Lance Reddick doing his best scary best. Like seeing them exchanging information in that like final scene is much like it, it's it's much more powerful if you're aware of a lot of the of like the common understanding slash belief that the Nation of Islam and the CIA work together to assassinate uh, Malcolm X. And so if you don't have that knowledge, you know, it just seems like, oh, there's a bad thing that's going to happen. And then then the firebomb. But, you know, those things are there. Um, Sam Cooke uh, performing A Change Is Gonna Come, you know, uh, is a song that doesn't sound as heavily political as it actually is if you don't get a chance to really focus on the lyrics. And because they had it playing behind a lot of other images, you don't get the explicit part of the lyrics that we're talking about police brutality or like it's, it's, you know, it's referencing and like signaling towards police brutality and inequality between, between white and black people. Jim Brown's decision to leave football at the Hatter's Prowess, I think would have been more powerful if you knew he was only 30 and that he was like the best football player on the planet. He walked away on his own to be able to control himself. Now, granted he's done, pretty much a ton of terrible stuff afterwards too. That Wikipedia entry is long, um, full of the scandal section of the Wikipedia entry is long um, and well-deserved. But um, all of those things I think are much more impactful if you know those things. And I feel like the film in two hours could have done a better job to give us some of those things, but you know, it wasn't really in scope for how they envisioned it. And I, I, I just think that instead of some of those opening, I mean, I felt like some of those opening vignettes were clumsy and I would have rather had more time digging into some of those things about like why those people are special, you know, than otherwise. Um, and the last thing, because I know I'm talking too much, is to, um, to James's point about whether they change. I think all of them change subtly. I don't think, I think Malcolm X was already on the road to his, you know, larger change. Muhammad Ali joins the Nation of Islam at the end of the movie, and I know from his biographies that one of his like big regrets is walking away from Malcolm in that moment and allowing that split to develop um, and, and basically not going with him, which is why that part, again, that would have been more compelling if you had any reference for that. And Sam Cooke passes away later in the same year of <laughs> that this movie's happening in a pretty bizarre accident. But, you know, knowing that that song and that performance is like a big part of his legacy and it's lost makes that performance extra special. There's all those things where like, I think that that's part of, you know, I realized like I got a lot of enjoyment out of the movie because of being immersed in all that history. But that's not what the majority of viewers are going to be able to see. And you have opportunity to show and not tell. Yeah, this is really like if you were going to pick a movie to show fourth graders during Black History Month, this would be a great movie for that. And I mean that in a, a genuinely positive sense in that it is essentially getting you interested in and giving you a basic understanding of the space at the time for these men and for that time period in U.S. history. It's not going to go deep enough for you to have a really nuanced understanding of any of the issues, right. but it would be a great way to sort of start you off, right? Um, but not go a lot further. Although I do want to... Beats the hell out of my friend Martin. Yes, it does. <laughs> yes, it does. I do want to quickly touch on what Ryan mentioned with regards to the uh, performance of a change is going to come that happens at the end of the film, because I do think, and, and Ryan mentioned that, like that it's lost, like there's a lot of significance in that moment because it really is Sam Cooke on Johnny Carson, Johnny Carson's show mm-hmm. um, at the time, giving a live performance of a brand new song that has since become one of the best civil rights songs again of all time, in my opinion, one of my favorite Sam Cooke songs of all time. Uh, and he gives this incredible performance live. And because TV at this point wasn't recorded, it's just gone. 
is gone. Like no one else, you'll never see that again. And they recreate it for this movie. And so I think the temporal like nature of that moment basically is a good uh, allegory for the overall film. And also everyone should listen to that song all day, every day for the entire like month. If you can. One thing I will say, I mentioned, I didn't know Sam Cooke, but I do know, did know two of his songs. I knew that song and Chain Gang somehow I knew. Because everyone knows Chain Gang. <laughs> um, but I couldn't have told you who sang them. Um, but yeah, stepping, speaking about a change is going to come and that performance. So w- watching the movie, I didn't know any of what you just said, Lauren. So after I watched the movie, I, as I want to do, I go to Wikipedia and I start clicking around and I open 8 million tabs and try to find time to read them all. And I did come across the fact that, like, that performance of Johnny Carson was not only the only recording that was, or the only performance that wasn't recorded, but if I read correctly, he never performed that song live ever again. Nope. And then before the song was released as a single or, or, or anything, uh, he died. And so it's like that combination of events is so tragic and it's it's amazing that we got that song and honestly like some people saw it but the fact that like the performances lost the time that was the only performance and he never really saw the impact that that song was gonna make in the subsequent years i think is just like a true injustice so i do want to circle around now that we have this opportunity um well well first before I get into the real life people, because I do want to come in and talk a little bit more about the real life people, since we have this opportunity to sort of talk through them. I want to know from the film folk, uh, so Lauren and Andre, what did you think about like the actual cinematography for this movie? Because like one thing I'll say is that they at least knew how to light black people, which is not a thing that many movies can do. But I did have some questions about like, the way certain things happened and like splitting certain characters off and sort of the way that was directed and the movie was sort of organized. I'm curious what you guys' thoughts were. Um, you want to tackle this one first, Lauren, or should I? I think you should go first because you had a lot of, this was tied to a lot of the things you didn't like about the film. So I'm curious to hear more of your thoughts. Yeah. So I actually thought the cinematography again was good. Um, it was another strong point of the movie, uh, mainly with the co- coloring and the lighting. Having just some of the background I do with uh, my nine to five type stuff as my webcam goes out. Um, having some of the background I do, like I thought just all the skin tones were beautiful. I thought all the lighting was beautiful um, and it made sense for both the time of day and just sort of how... Uh, when you think about how some of those uh, hotel rooms would look, it, it all kind of made sense and fit. As far as splitting characters off, given that this is a play, it makes sense that it would be these kind of isolated vignettes with extras just kind of that might just so happen to be in the background as opposed to um, what you would typically think of uh, in a movie or in a sort of drama movie where characters aren't as isolated in these one-on-one conversations, or you think about just kind of a few friends just kind of sitting at a table just talking as well. So I thought uh, it was just a strong suit uh, for the film. It was just good. I really liked the cinematography. I agree with everything Andre said about the lighting and everything. It really was nice to watch a film with black people where you could see them, even in the dark. Because we are visible, even at night. What I found interesting, James, is that you said earlier that this film felt more like a stage play to you than Ma Rainey did, even though we know both were based on stage plays. And I actually feel the opposite way. So for me, this film felt more like a movie. And part of that was because they took advantage of the affordances of film that Ma Rainey didn't take, which included flashbacks, for instance, um, and being able to, to show angles that you wouldn't typically have if you were watching this in a theater whereas Ma Rainey was very much blocked like a stage play like it was really just a recording of that play as opposed to trying to immerse you in a a movie sort of setting but I do feel like the dialogue 
in this movie was more like a stage play than the dialogue in Ma Rainey. So it was just kind of an interesting dichotomy there. I thought that part was was fine. I do think that the the practice of sort of... So I think there was some chunky editing throughout the film, particularly as it was cutting from vignette to vignette. I think the introduction of the title sequence, which is like over the iconic image of Muhammad Ali in the pool preparing for the fight, was a little weird. Like, I loved the image. The image itself was beautiful. It was gorgeous. But it felt weird at that point to introduce the title sequence to me for some reason. And I felt like the editing as it twitched from person to person to person and then throughout the rest of the film was just kind of off. It didn't feel like it flowed really well to me. I didn't have a problem with courting off the characters. That for me felt like a, a, a choice so that you could actually examine the character dynamics between individuals changing over time, right? It's one of those things where you go to a party and actually maybe you're talking with this friend and a couple of you go off into a corner and you have other conversations. Like it was really trying to like isolate down how character dynamics change based on who was in the room, given that some of them, like Sam Cooke and um, Malcolm X, really didn't get along as well as the others did. So it explored basically those divisions by being able to cut out the other characters and just, excuse me, focus on conversation between two of them, which is also necessary because there's only four of them in a hotel room, right? So you can't actually really lean in on their individual connections if you have all four people in the room. So for me, it just felt like a logistical choice so you could explore characters than anything else. I'm using my hands a lot in that statement. Sorry, I don't know why. Yeah, that's a good point. Although I will disagree on the editing a bit. I actually thought in terms of like editing within the conversations, everything uh, flowed really well. And what was great about the editing for uh, the flashbacks for me was that it seemed like they chose to go with shots with some sort of movement in a lot of those. I had to go back and uh, rewatch it just to double check and confirm. But like, I remember the image of the theater where the uh, audio system goes out, and like, they, I remember just that kind of just that pulling back um, with the dolly or the zoom out. Um, um, I. Yeah, it's been a minute since I've seen this movie. It's been a few days, so I'm still trying to remember that exact shot. But yeah, just like the the incorporation of movement with the camera. And then, you know, when you look at some of the stuff with uh, uh, Muhammad Ali scenes, when you look at those um, and how things are a little bit more frantic because of the fighting, I thought uh, the camera work was really strong and the way that they cut between the shots was really strong. And... Uh, those instances, uh, though I do agree that the opening and the ending montages really were not well done. Yeah, and I'm glad you called out the the transition into the scene where Sam Cooke is about to perform um, at a black club, and the the sound goes out, and it's indica- you know it's implied that he was sabotaged. Mm-hmm. Because I agree that was a great transition. It's actually the whole scene is beautiful. Yeah. Because um, when he's basically stymied, this, his, the sound goes out, his band abandons him, the crowd is angry, and he calms them down by going into, again, what I do think is like every Black person's favorite song, Chain Gang, somehow one that we just all know, and you will instantly fall in line with the rhythm when you start to hear it. <laughs> uh, he basically does that by getting a few folks in the front to like stomp and clap and grunt with him as he starts to sing. And it calms the whole crowd down. And that scene ends, essentially, with Malcolm and Malcolm X is narrating this whole thing because it was the first time we ever saw Sam Cooke perform. And towards the end of that scene, you know, Malcolm describes the fact that Sam's doing all this and the camera is right close to Sam. So you can hear him, you can see him. And then it starts to pull back through the crowd and his voice fades beautifully. And the whole point is Malcolm X talking about how you actually couldn't hear Sam at all in the back of the room. Because he's just singing without a microphone and the room's full of people like stopping, right? And, and going along. And But it didn't matter. There was still a lot of energy in the room. But the whole like the whole production of that shot was honestly just glorious, in my opinion. That shot is probably, like that whole sequence is probably my favorite part of the movie. There's a lot more impactful parts and a lot better, a lot more, you know, intense monologues and things. But for a movie that's about four friends who have a lot of tension, but they are for friends. That kind of, like, the love and the retelling of that 
and the way it was framed, the way it was filmed, the audio for for those was done like extremely well. I really enjoyed. Like I actually like I think I like turned it, turned it up a little bit to get more bass <laughs> uh, as I was happening. It was just really gorgeous, and like that moment there and where it was placed in the story was actually like really powerful for me because they've had all these blowups, they've had all these arguments about these different paths, and at the end there, there's this mutual appreciation. And I thought it was just really beautiful. Yeah, and that's what I was going to call out was the audio of that scene. It was one of the best audio edits I've seen in a while in terms of uh, just sort of modern movies that are being made. Because we typically think about an audio track as being the dialogue, a little bit of background noise, and then a bunch of music being played underneath it. And um, sometimes the most powerful edits are the times when they take away audio which doesn't really happen happen much in movies nowadays and i thought that that was uh that was the best time to remove audio and allow the audience to really feel the moment and i guess that's where a lot of my criticism of this movie comes where is where i didn't really feel that moment uh or like feel uh what was going on like i would typically want to from a movie but that yeah that scene was definitely the best scene in the movie yeah i would echo that that scene is absolutely my like favorite scene i think completely outside the movie that scene like stands on its own and tells its own little story um which i think is especially interesting andre i want to hear a little bit more about you saying you didn't feel like connected or in the movie. Cause that's one thing that I, and maybe it was the camera work, but like, I felt very in the conversation. I felt like I was like standing in the room, not saying anything, just like nodding as all these people were like talking. Maybe that's just cause that's the thing that I do a lot. So I felt like way into it in that aspect. So I'm kind of curious what, what you felt was missing. Super mo- superhero movies actually do a really can't well they can do a really nice job of that job of this um, calling out particular when you look at uh, the Christopher Nolan Batman's you look at a movie like uh, Black Panther um, but for, but you know just sticking with those four movies you can have these deeper debates and you can actually show them on screen and effectively. Um, kind of go through these debates just by completely displaying them so for instance black panther everyone talks about killmonger and uh killmonger versus um t'challa but basically we kind of have these more a more militant stance when it comes to the state of uh black people around the world versus uh one where looking at killmonger or not killmonger looking at t'challa where uh he's typically going with the status quo where we kind of have to sort of, you know, protect our light. And the way that the two perspectives interact and conflict is really compelling. And you can actually feel and enjoy those moments. The problem that I had with this movie is just hearing that and just hearing two people just kind of talk about it just wasn't as impactful, but actually being able to see the sort of, emotion that uh malcolm is kind of uh, encouraging uh sam cook to uh, pull out of people with that boston show that is more of what i like to see in movies and what uh really provides that immersive experience that i enjoy whereas just the general like conversation of well you should have did this and you should do this or you know i did this or i do this because of that it's a little bit more behind the scenes or in this that and the other thing all of that stuff just, like, as you said, like, I don't enjoy the feeling of just sitting in the room and enjoying the conversation. No, I just want to, I want to be immersed in the movie and just forget that I'm watching a movie and just enjoy a story. And that's where uh, this uh, movie really annoyed me, where it was that I never felt like I was enjoying the story outside of, again, that one scene in Boston. I felt like I was just, you know, in the room while these two people are just going back and forth. And I'm just like, okay. Yeah, I think that's a really, like, interesting point. Because I agree with you. I think that the difference is that my 
overall feeling is not doesn't quite line up because I did end up enjoying it. But I actually agree that like all that stuff is true. As you were describing sort of the conflict in Black Panther, I I was thinking more about that and I'm like, well yeah, actually like those conversations were a little bit more like energizing. And I think maybe for me is that that's what that movie was about. Superhero stuff notwithstanding. Like and this movie didn't quite take that stance where like this is what we've decided this movie is going to be about and we're going to have everything in the movie sort of build on these ideas where we're going to talk about these things and then show you stuff that happens like Sam talks about um supporting black artists and black businesses and helping people get like paid from writing credits and stuff but we don't see any of that it's just him sort of telling us that that happened and so I do think now that I'm sort of talking through it that like I think there are other movies that do this maybe in a little bit more compelling way. I think the thing that probably really like hooked me is just and and this also comes from me not knowing a lot about these people, but just being able to see these people in this time sort of like talking inspired me to be like, oh, like I forgot that these kinds of things can happen because I didn't learn about these kinds of things that often. And I think that's what ultimately ended up sort of like hooking me through this movie more than like the actual story of the movie or the actual things that people said in the movie. And also, too, one thing I just do want to insert is that superheroes are very on the nose with that because you do get these, uh, you know, you get these conflicting views and ultimately they come down to uh, people beating each other up. If you want a better example of sort of the show don't tell... I think a lot of Edgar Wright's movies are a really good example of like movies that just master show don't tell, whether it's Baby Driver and some of the rhythm in that, or even like a movie like Hot Fuzz, where we kind of get a sense of time and space on screen and they don't have to tell us that we're moving out to the country. We see it in sort of the way the movie transitions, um, show some of the transitions and the differences of taxis and things like that. And, you know, even if you're more of a classical or like a classic film fan, you can look at a lot of the work of Kurosawa and the way that he blocks and uses people and objects within the frame to create emotion and indicate uh, the way the audience is supposed to feel. Sorry, that gets us in the little bit of the weeds of uh, filmmaking uh, and things like that. But that's the only real examples that I know of to describe sort of what i'm looking for when i'm watching movies same absolutely one of my favorite directors totally here for the edgar wright uh references that's it. i do think like while i totally see andre's point i agree actually with a lot of that i think one of the challenges here that regina king was facing directing this you know queen of our hearts and lives of course uh, is the fact that it's, I think, easier in some ways to do that when you feel like you have full ownership of the characters and their lives because they're fictional. Where in this case, we're fictionalizing exchanges between actual human beings, one of which is still alive, at least as of this particular recording. And I wonder if part of that was hesitation, essentially, to ascribe too strongly uh, a particular ethos or outlook beyond what they themselves have said and thus, she was essentially re- like doing a lot of this in by having them tell essentially the audience this is the world because it felt inauthentic to do it differently. I don't know. That's one of the ways I think that that kind of story maybe could have been better if we actually weren't using historic characters, but had just created new characters. But then it would also lose some of the punch of the fact that this in some ways really happened to these people who actually experienced a lot of these things too. So it's hard to know which way would have been more effective. I agree. I think that there's definitely a, um, a black, a hashtag black excellence thing going on here with, Hey, if, if all these people at the peak of their respective disciplines, you know, are all faced with these issues and these stressors and these problems and them, you know, leaving out from this, going their separate ways, but all addressing these issues, does do a good job of reflecting on one of the most common ways that we view the civil rights movement of, you know, a great man kind of movement where here's all these great men and these are the different things that they did. And this is how they beat racism. Um, and I think that that's problematic because it doesn't really address the larger communities that they worked with, the broader aspects of that struggle. 
And like I, the one thing I actually really appreciated about, in particular, Leslie Odom Jr.'s uh, dialogue with Sam was Sam gets into how he's approaching these issues more directly. Jim Brown is just kind of high and hand waved in. He's in movies now, and like he supports black businesses, just like me shopping on Miria on my on my on my phone is like. Yeah, I support black businesses. Also, check out the Myria app, y'all. M-I-I-R-I-Y-A, I think. It's like Etsy for black small businesses. It's really cool. You'll spend lots of money by accident like me. But but I think that the just the short lives of of Sam and Malcolm after this really restrict what they're able to do in the storytelling. I thought that on Malcolm's side, they did a really good job of dealing with his fear and paranoia and anxiety around leaving the nation. But I keep coming back to how heavy-handed they were about his autobiography of, oh yeah, I met with this reporter. He was a brother. I decided to give him the interview thing. And near the end of the movie, during the big closing montage of vignettes, Malcolm and Betty's home is firebombed. Their kids are, you know, they're carrying their kids out in a, in a rifle um, in his boxer shorts and robe. And, you know, get out of town and get to a motel as he's, like, watching the door. And, like, the idea that Malcolm carrying two children on his hip and a rifle had time to grab the pristine printed out copy of the manuscript of his autobiography by Alex Haley so that he can, you know, is the only other thing he grabbed from the house, like, is actually infuriating. <laughs> it's like, like, come on, like. You could just say in the like at the end of the movie when they do, they do the thing with historical movies where there's always a quote from one of the principals and details about how they died. You could have just said right there, Alex Haley publishes but autobiography in 90s, 1968 or something. That would have been fine. You didn't have to give me that really awkward shot that made me upset. Because like cause yeah, I, I think that there's. You all were talking about editing styles earlier. I almost felt like every one of the four kind of got a different sort of style on their vignettes and edits. And I enjoyed that for some things, but for some of them, I really didn't. The Muhammad Ali ones in particular were really good, but they were... Uh, so this is a little bit of me being a photography nerd as opposed to a uh, cinematography nerd. But a bunch of the shots of Eli Gore from... Um, performing as Muhammad Ali in the fights and in the press conferences are recreations of famous photographs of Ali. And that's why, and so, you know, some of the most dynamic angles and things there are not because that's just someone's inspiration. They are recreating, you know, trying to recreate some of the most famous like photographs in history. Also, I really appreciated them going into like Malcolm's you know, photography nerdness because I enjoyed learning about that. Um, Gordon talk Gordon Parks, famous black uh, photographer. Um, I remember writing about Malcolm's uh, joy of photography and the way that he used it as like documenting evidences. I think the the phrase he used about the things that were going on. And when you think about how he was haunted by the specter of death, how he felt like everything was going to end, like him having the camera as a you know, as a storytelling device was actually really fitting and they just could have done so much more with it. So I don't know, like there's, there's some things left on the table. Some of the stuff there was like too much, but like overall, you know, I felt pretty good about how they at least tried to put most of this together. I still don't know how it ended up being two hours. So I do, we're, we're getting pretty close to time. Um, but there's one thing that I do want to talk about. Um, that's only tangentially related to this movie. Um, and uh, I know this is not good audio, but I have shared it with my co-host. It is fortuitous that we have decided to record this episode on this particular day. I will note as August 26th, because it is the day that it was announced that Epic's Fortnite will have a Martin Luther King exhibit as part of the game. <laughs> Uh, I what? shared a 30 second clip with my co-host and I want to get some immediate reactions. Yes. Because you know, this like, story is wild. You, you can play as, um, what? As, as Thanos, uh, standing at the Washington Monument, marching for freedom with MLK, I'm assuming. I wonder if you can be like 
John Lewis doing a Fortnite dance or something else disrespectful. <laughs> Holy crap, yeah. So so to frame this conversation a little bit more and 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 once again, this is literally new, literally announced hours ago as of when we were recording this. There is uh, effectively a museum in Fortnite as in a partnership with Time magazine in which there will be different exhibits um showing different important artifacts from the civil rights movement. There is a recreation of uh, Washington, D.C. during 1963. You can watch a recording of the I Have a Dream speech. And I think there are other different kinds of activities that you can participate in. I have not done it. It is apparently live. Some people have done it. So I don't have a lot more information other than what uh, Epic has provided in the trailer. There won't be any as of today. So who knows when you hear this, there won't be any skins of any of the real life uh, abolitionists from the movement. We shall see. But I'm curious, sort of, as we're thinking about different ways in which, like, our history is being shared with the youths, quote, like, I just want to get your reactions on this as an avenue for this kind of topic, as we're thinking about a movie somewhat related to this topic. <laughs> I need to go last. Can I... Can I- can I ask a clarifying question? And I just want to pre preface that question with that. I don't like anything that just happened in the last two minutes. So I just don't think I like any of it, but I do need to ask a clarifying question because I've never played Fortnite, though. I am aware that it exists. What is the main like storyline plot framing of Fortnite? Generally speaking, I need to know how weird this is. It's weird. I need to know how weird. This is part of the reason I need to go last. <laughs> so Fortnite does have a story. I have no idea what it is. Yeah, that's the main game proper. Yeah. Um, and it, it um, while this is weird in so much as the topic, it is not weird in so much as that Fortnite also has, in addition to its various different combat modes and competitive modes, like events that happen. So there historically, there have been really big concerts, really elaborate concerts that happen in Fortnite that where no one is competing they're watching a thing happen so like the idea of having something like this is not weird but this specific topic is exceptionally weird especially as Ryan mentioned there are a lot of uh skins in Fortnite Fortnite is very colorful you can play as Superman you can play as Thanos you can play as a Terminator you can play as Rick and Morty from Rick and Morty you can play as a weeb <laughs> yes <laughs> You could play as a banana. So all of these things still exist inside of this museum. You are basically taking your avatar into this museum type event. So it does not mesh with the Fortnite story as far as I know. But uh, but yeah, it's not quite as weird as if it was literally from nowhere. Like, uh, where do I even start? Uh, I, I changed my Zoom background to MLK in the episode of The Boondocks where... The Return of the King, uh, where MLK is brought back to life in the modern day and expresses a lot of discontent with all the things going on. And I believe one of the things that he actually says in that episode, and I got to check back, double check my Aaron Magruder uh, encyclopedia, is him looking up at something about a biopic about himself and being like, I should really have a say in the licensing and the rights for these kind of things. Uh, <laughs> and that's what I felt like for this was like. There is an actual Black History Museum that could have had just like a virtual exhibit, uh, a mixed reality exhibit thing. Um, I understand the reason for using Fortnite and that Fortnite was like for Fortnite as a mixed reality platform, a place where you can like show lots of people things is a really interesting concept. It's got a ridiculous number of users around the world. And I think that this was done in concert with Time magazine, which, uh, time take or leave it honestly like i don't even know what modern time is owned by but there's just as frequently sensationalist uh supermarket end cap uh special editions about john benet ramsey in 2021 um from time <laughs> as there are like normal news magazine things so don't know if that's the folks that i think about you know as far as popularizing king's legacy i also noticed that this stops in 1963 so before anything really pops off in terms of like king's ideology towards militarism say or 
you know, expressly about, you know, poverty, you know, or socialism. Really scary words. And I think that, yeah, there's a lot of ways that kids are introduced to King in a very sanctified and sanitized way. And this is kind of part of a long tradition of those. It just feels particularly incongruous, <laughs> considering everything else going on. Thanos twerking on the same platform that you can go watch in Monkey Museum is a really interesting use of technology, is the kindest thing I can say. Um, but, you know, it's not like there's a, a massive Black-owned virtual reality space where, like, there's... You, you can have some faith in faith or trust in someone to take ownership of that content. To bring it back to the movie, and we talked about, you know, Queen Regina directing this film. And, you know, there's a real care there taken that's the, that's like, you know, a care for that history and these people's legacies, even through, even through some of those dramatized parts of the, dramatized and fictionalized parts of their identity. You don't always have that trust from everybody who's looking to recap history. And, uh, yeah, my, my, my side eye is all the way, um, all the way activated for, what this actually is going to entail, and more importantly, what it's going to leave out. Dre, please enlighten us about how how the aliens destroyed Tomato Town and put down the MLK Museum. Uh, so as I take the another five minutes of this podcast to express my views, so I'll start off by talking about uh, Fortnite as a game. So Fortnite as a game has a few different modes. There's the original Fortnite game, which is the story mode with all the zombies and you're building all the forts and things like that. There's the Fortnite that everyone really knows, the popularized Battle Royale mode. And then there's also the sandbox mode, um, which Epic Games, the makers of Fortnite, have used to do some weird cross-promotional things and promos and things like that. They partner with AMD to show off the sort of aesthetics of graphics cards as 3D models. Um, like James said, there have been concerts and things like that. And so it's not, it doesn't, for me, knowing all of that about Fortnite, I tried playing it for a small amount of time. I really didn't get into it. Just going to throw it out there. But knowing all of what I know about Fortnite and looking at this is just like, okay, it's not totally out of left field. But at the same time, it doesn't quite make sense. And with that said, I don't think this this is the right game for it. I could see someone doing this something like this in Minecraft and it being really effective. And I say that because people have done things in Minecraft. Like I know of a group that made a whole mod where they entirely recreated uh, the Disney parks just to allow people the virtual experience of going to the Disney parks in case they uh, couldn't afford to, or in case they love to do it uh, or what have you. Um, I've heard of mods, you know, the very famous Pixelmon mod, which is just a recreation of Pokemon. Um, and so I can see in the context of something like that, where you can actually do really good two scale renderings of a lot of these buildings and a lot of these monuments and uh, exhibits I can see a game like that working. Also, my mind goes to uh, some of the things that were done with the Assassin's Creed franchise, not in that they're historically accurate, but with the way that they've uh, scanned buildings and how some of those scans that they did for that game and those 3D renderings are being used to actually restore and recreate some of those buildings um, that uh, may have been destroyed over the years. I say all of this to make this point where I see games as being a very effective way to tell good historical stories and to allow people to interact with uh, historical exhibits, but I just don't think that this is the right game to do that. <laughs> I would I would just really love a recording of the corporate boardroom conversation in which someone said, you know what we need to add to this zombie shooter game? MLK's I have a dream speech. <laughs> like who 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 really sat and thought that was appropriate? Why? And, and so, you know, I mean maybe Fortnite was just like, hey, they really, you know, wanted you to get to a world where you're judged not by the color of your Fortnite skin, but by the contact <laughs> by the contact no. No. of your uh, of your of your online character. We're <laughs> Okay, Riot has been canceled. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> no. 
Ryan's muted for the rest of the podcast. It's not allowed to say anything. We won't take your recap at the end. Uh, for fear of turning this into the Black Video Game Podcast, coming soon to uh, Apple Podcasts and anywhere podcasts will listen to. Don't tease me with a good time, James. <laughs> um, I, I thought this was particularly interesting. You know, I brought it up sort of as a lark. It just so happened to be that it was announced this today. You know, thinking about bringing history in front of where people are, I can understand why you would do this. I agree with Andre that maybe this is not the right avenue. I think you can reach the youth without necessarily doing it this way. It would be interesting to see more studios, more more creatives, whether it be in video games or, or, or other arts, really starting to tackle this in a way that clearly our education system is not interested in tackling um, and building things that educators can use as resources in the classroom. I think the other thing that's worth mentioning about this particular event is, as is all things in Fortnite, this shall not live forever, I assume. And so there will be a time where an educator might want to use something like this or might want to expose the students to the memorials in a virtual way that just doesn't exist because this will go away and be replaced with something else. But I do think it's interesting that we sort of are trying to figure out ways to put our history in front of people who might not watch a movie like the movie that we watched or might not watch a movie like Selma or any of the other variety of movies that we've either talked about or not uh, that cover black history. So I'm, willing to take sort of a wait and see approach but i just i think this is a very fascinating topic and i know that we'll likely be hearing and talking more about it in the future so we're running a little long so i do want to circle back around uh to one night in miami and hear uh everyone's final thoughts on the movie as we wrap up this ludicrous episode of the black movie podcast uh i'll start get get us rolling as i said from the top i still really like this movie but I probably like it more as here are some interesting people that said some interesting stuff, some of which may or may not have been true or true to their character. Now go learn more about them, which is a thing that I personally find fascinating. It's one of the things I like about documentaries. And so I like it for that aspect, but I can see some of its falters as an actual movie that you would sit and watch and enjoy. Who who wants to give their final thoughts that isn't Ryan? Because once again, he's muted. I'll go next. Um, I'm I'm going to plus one a lot of what you just said, James. Like, I, I do like this movie. I do think it's best to come at this as sort of like an academic exercise in learning more about these figures and their experiences and using this as an onboarding platform to, like, dive deeper into their biographies and their history and things like that. I will say that I did love the music. In this movie, and that's because a lot of it is actually Sam Cooke. But uh, I'll also just do a shout out for Leslie Odom Jr. actually wrote and sang the song that goes over the credits, Listen, which is also, I think, a legitimately just good anthem. So you can download yourself some new music. If you're tired of Hamilton, you can move on to Leslie's other excellent work. I For me, it was... I I just didn't enjoy the 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 uh hypothetical debate uh between all of these characters or all of these people I should say and it took away from the film for me not to say that it's a deeply flawed film like some of the movies that we've talked about before but yeah this one I will say wasn't for me I didn't really enjoy it though it did have some really, really strong pieces to it. It just bothered me while watching it, where I was just kind of waiting for the movie to end as opposed to enjoying the experience of watching it. Well, thank you all for joining us for the Black for the Black Movie Podcast. Um, Ryan is looking at me forlornly. Looks so Ryan, sad. what's your <laughs> recap? I um, I mean, I, I, I served my time. I was punished for my time. The... I think that this is a movie that um, does a really good job of getting you interested in four very different, uh, very different men at a very particular point in history. And I think it does serve as a good jumping off point to go explore more. 
particular, I think that, um, you know, looking into the diverging paths of Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X in particular are something that something that is particularly worthwhile after finishing this movie. If you're not familiar with their lives and histories, Malcolm X's autobiography frequently talked about in the movie indirectly uh, by Alex Haley is a pretty foundational piece of black literature and is probably worth a read to understand the arc of um, arc of his life from his early life as Detroit Red, which is talked about a little bit in the movie, but only a little bit to Hajj, to, to his, uh, his Hajj um, in Saudi Arabia to Mecca. And there's just a lot of really interesting things there. You know, it's a really great directorial debut by uh, Regina King. And I believe that she was one of the, she was the first, uh, first black woman to get her film shown at Venice for this. And, you know, it's really awesome that like seemingly everything that she does these days is, you know, knocking down barriers and things, which is very much in the spirit of this film. And with that, we will wrap up this episode of the black movie podcast. Thank you very much for listening. You know the deal. Follow us on Twitter at BLK Movie Podcast. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for our next episode, and I hope you all have a good rest of your night. Thank you for listening to the Black Movie Podcast. Our show is edited by Mike Knight. Our theme song is by Chris Negro Justice Brown, and our logo was created by Savannah Alexander. Good people, we did memories. These are the only things I need.